Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, Dr. Smith will be speaking to Dr. Eric Wong about his article, International Consensus Statement on Endoscopic Skull Base Surgery, an Executive Summary. This edition of Scope It Out is made possible by support from FIAGON. The FIAGON ENT Navigation System is a uniquely small and easy-to-use image guidance system that was meticulously designed with your needs in mind. FIAGON has packed the power of precise navigation with tip tracking technology and bendable instrumentation into a compact system that maximizes your workflow, allowing you to focus on what matters most, your patients. Visit www.fiagon.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Smith, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Eric Wong from Pittsburgh. We'll be discussing his article, which is currently available online and is entitled International Consensus Statement on Endoscopic Skull Base Surgery. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tim. Happy to be here. Well, you are uh, very welcome. Uh, your article, I think, examines the management of numerous skull-based pathologies. Uh, I found it fascinating. Some of these pathologies include cerebrospinal fluid rhinorrhea. You touch on intradural tumors, sinonasal malignancies, clival tumors, and then key issues in reconstruction after these procedures, and then the complications that are associated with skull-based surgery. You found a modest level of evidence addressing these issues, and you make a number of recommendations about how endoscopic skull-based surgeons might approach these pathologies and their potential complications. So it really is an inclusive document, and there's a lot for all of us to learn by reading through it. I'm curious, what, what surprised you, I guess, the most as these recommendations came together? Well, Tim, it's a very diverse set of pathologies. And although we treat them with sort of a similar corridor using the endoscopic endonasal technique, actually, you know, it varied quite a bit from things that were in the orbit to things that were in the central skull base, like pituitary tumors, Mm -hmm. to somewhat controversial tumors, like dealing with things in the posterior fossa, and then malignancy. So as you can expect, uh, there is a lot of diversity in the levels of evidence. I guess that's what we were truly expecting. But actually, I I was very pleased to find that there were some areas for which the merging of data through either systematic review or meta-analysis, those kinds of statistical techniques, actually provided us some really interesting data and some things that we could actually draw some level of conclusion off of. A good example of that is, although for reconstruction. We've used a lot of different techniques over a lot of time, and we've seen that in study over study. The use of vascularized reconstruction when put together in a systematic review actually has a really relatively strong recommendation. And that's a nice way of being able to synthesize the sort of diverse but rare tumor pathology and reconstructive techniques. Yeah, so let's dig into that one a little bit more. When you say vascular reconstruction, define what you mean by that for our listeners, and then we'll talk about where you might use vascular reconstruction versus not, you know, non-vascularized reconstruction. Absolutely. So when we use the term vascularized, we mean that it has a very defined arterial input. Actually, interestingly, we don't really worry about the venous drainage very much, at least for a lot of endoscopic skull base surgery, but we're really worried that it has an arterial supply 
And for our intranasal flaps, those are almost all arising from the sphenopalatine artery. And our classic one is the nasal septal flap, which is really, I think, revolutionized and allowed us to have endoscopic skull base surgery in many ways. Yeah. Um, but, but there are actually a variety of others. Some of them are also intranasal, like the inferior turbinate or lateral nasal wall. And then some are regional, which we're inserting through tunneled flaps, whether that be pericranium and others. So we kind of clump together that diverse group of techniques, but they all have that same common thread, which is that they provide an arterial supply into the reconstruction. And it seems that in many pathologies that have larger intradural defects, this is a very valuable technique. Sometimes it's used in conjunction with non-vascularized reconstructions like grafts and other things, but it really seems to have provided us that ability to access and reconstruct those skull-based defects that essentially can go from the frontal sinus all the way down to frame and magnum. Yeah, and I think it's safe to say that that one technique using some type of vascularized reconstruction has taken post-operative CSF leak morbidity from something like 50% prior to the introduction of those types of flaps down to probably under 10%. Is that is that fair to say? I think it is. I think if you were to group them all together, I think you, your statement is, is right on. And as we all know, that was really probably the greatest criticism of the yeah. technique for a long, long time. And I mean, I think that we really wouldn't have a document like this without its incorporation uh, into our armamentarium of reconstruction. So how does the surgeon know when they need to use a vascularized reconstruction technique versus a free mucosal graft or some autologous material, a synthetic material? So I think, Tim, you're actually bringing out a really good point and actually a knowledge gap that we really have, which is really the development of an endonasal reconstructive ladder. Yeah. We don't entirely have that yet. I think a lot of us have a sense of how we like to do it, what's been successful for us. Probably both you and I have a semblance of a reconstructive ladder in our head, but we haven't actually proven it very much yet. Yeah. And I think that that's really a very interesting and valuable knowledge gap that us as rhinologists can really help define. It does seem like free grafts are still valuable, especially for low-flow CSF leaks or in areas where there's not a clear CSF leak, but maybe like a weeping of CSF that's commonly after pituitary tumor resection. And it still may be a very good and valuable technique for a lot of our spontaneous or traumatic CSF leaks. But we still haven't entirely defined all of those uh, settings, and I think that that's actually a, a ripe area for us to look forward to as we sort of balance this need for reconstruction as well as the need for surgical access and increasingly our understanding of nasal morbidity, which is actually another part of the consensus statement is trying to look into some of those complications associated with the technique. Yeah. If a surgeon has, let's, let's take spontaneous CSF leaks because a lot of our audience probably manages that particular skull-based defect. Tell us about the evidence related to a free graft in that case versus, let's say, a nasoceptal flap based on the sphenopalatine or branches of the sphenopalatine artery. Actually, if you were to say, when we look specifically at that evidence, yeah. actually there was no recommendation we could make yeah. because the whether you use a free graft technique, whether you believed in some version of rigid reconstruction, whether that be cartilage or bone, or vascularized reconstruction, those patients actually did quite well, provided we controlled their intracranial hypertension. Right. In that and program. that was, 
And that was one of the areas where you had, where you would define kind of a take-home message from this particular document, and that's the need to control post-operative intracranial hypertension and spontaneous CSF leak repair. Absolutely, Tim. I mean, I think that that's actually probably one of the strongest recommendations that we can derive from this document is that need. There's a lot of both indirect and direct evidence for it. And it's one of the areas where I think we can make a fairly strong recommendation for the need to control that. How you control that, I think, is still an area of some that's not clearly defined, whether empiric treatment with medication, which is a common practice, whether direct measurements so you can understand the degree of intracranial hypertension. I think that that's still kind of undefined in how we do that. But I think as a broad statement, the need to control it is there. And then we can still sort of define what those criteria should be and who are still the patients who are at risk for failure. Okay. Now, how do you determine which patients have intracranial hypertension in this spontaneous CSF leak group? The document talks about the indirect measures you can look for. For instance, a empty cella or partially empty cella. Classic signs also include like kinking of the optic nerve or arachnoid pits, and then it being located in fairly classic areas like the cribriform plate or in the lateral recess of the sphenoid sinus. But many authors also felt the need to directly measure that. And in my own personal practice, I tend to repair them and then have them undergo a puncture two weeks later under fluoroscopy by interventional radiology for a direct measure. But I think, again, it's unclear if that's valuable or not valuable based upon the literature, whether the indirect measures are good enough to tell us that we should just empirically treat everybody, or whether directed measurement has a benefit for their prevention of recurrence or prevention of a second skull base defect in the future. Right, whether that be in the nose or oftentimes actually even in the middle ear integument. Right, right. So we have to be aware of that as well. Yeah, and I have to say, so here's been my practice over over many years now. Generally, I treat the spontaneous CSF leak with, in most cases, unless it's in that lateral sphenoid, for instance, and even there, I would often use a free mucosal graph for those types of leaks. I find that Generally speaking, these are the smaller leaks without a large encephalocele, without a large bony skull base defect. They tend to be a couple of millimeters uh, oftentimes. So I have commonly treated those with a free mucosal graft. More than five years ago, I would have used a lumbar drain in the perioperative period. Now, I don't use a lumbar drain in the perioperative period, even with the spontaneous CSF leak. I still use a free mucosal graft. I tend, even if they have stigmata on the MRI, such as empty cella of intracranial hypertension, I tend to not recommend I have tended to not recommend treatment of intracranial hypertension over the longer term in that patient population unless they recur with another CSF leak. How would your document evaluate my care of that patient population? Let's just use my care as an example of how we might use the document to alter one's care. Sure. Well, I think that your choice of reconstruction is quite validated. We really make no recommendation about how to do the repair because as you're largely pointing out, it's 
quite effective. Like our, our modern skull-based reconstructive techniques are very effective, whether they be in the ethmoid roof or in the lateral recess. We, we tend to be pretty good at that, and we, we are pretty good at defining that skull-based defect and repairing it. So from a technical standpoint, I think that that sounds exactly right on. For the controlling of the intracranial hypertension, I think that the document encourages people to prophylactically treat that after their first, rather than waiting for a second recurrence. A recurrence. And I think the document supports that most of these patients, not all of them, but most of them have idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Yeah. And in the absence of pretty significant and dramatic lifestyle changes like very, very significant weight loss, it seems that most patients need to have some version of management. And that's certainly not always within our our practices as rhinologists. And sometimes this means that we we may need to seek consultations with others, whether that be neurology, which is the group that most commonly deals with this population, or our neurosurgery, if it's really extreme. Let me ask you this, Tim. Do, do you yeah. often get these patients a neuro-ophthalmologic examination for things like papilledema as a indirect measure? I've not done that as a standard, unless there is reason from the patient, you know, uh, based on some symptom that they might have. So, I've, I mean, I think based on your document and what you're describing, I've taken a more laissez-faire approach to the idea that the patient has intracranial hypertension. And after I read your document, I, I felt like I need to be more active in understanding who exactly has intracranial hypertension and get them on some type of management plan. It wasn't clear to me, though, let, let me ask you this, if mm-hmm. the patient has empty cella, let's say, and a spontaneous CSF leak, which you repair, is that enough information for you, or do you still want to get an opening pressure a couple of weeks after the CSF leak is repaired to measure their intracranial pressure? So I think this is an area that has a lot of unclarity, and it's Mm -hmm. another, again, ripe opportunity for us to study something that we don't have good answers for yet. I mean, I think that that's the, if I would say the funnest thing about this document was really being able to identify these research opportunities for us, you know, and and hopefully, although we would say spontaneous CSF leaks are, I guess, relatively common as far as these pathologies go, it right. still takes us a long time to study these things compared yeah. to many of the other things we do. And so, again, it's a ripe opportunity for us to think about multi-institutional trials to try to address yeah. these things. So yeah. the fact is that the document can't actually differentiate whether radiographic signs or other indirect measures like papilledema are enough to push us to do it versus gold standard things like an opening pressure. And even when you do the opening pressure is an area of some controversy. Obviously, with a leak, theoretically, the pressure is a little bit lower than it would be after you do the repair. But some people still largely use that as their primary determining factor, while other people feel strongly about the need to get an opening pressure afterwards. So I think this is really something that it would be interesting for us to study because opening pressures are not without some, or lumbar punctures are not without some cost to the patient, both in discomfort as well as just another procedure. Right. And it would be interesting for us if we could study that and understand it, but we would probably need, again, very large numbers to do so because our success rates are still pretty high, Yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's really about identifying that population right. who may not do as well. 
Right. And I think if I send these patients to my neurology colleague, who I suspect intracranial hypertension, they are likely going to end up on something like acetazolamide over the longer term. And if I send them to my neurosurgery colleagues, they're more likely to get a lumbar peritoneal shunt <laughs> to manage their intracranial hypertension. I view both of these options as having substantial morbidity, enough to really think about whether that is the right thing or not. That's where I struggle with this a bit. Once we even identify intracranial hypertension, I'm not sure there's great evidence as to the best way to treat that intracranial hypertension. Yeah, this is outside probably the realm of this document. I think that the International Headache Society has started working on defining the appropriate therapies for them. And thankfully, we do have some other options nowadays. We're not stuck with just acetazolamide. Topamax actually is a yeah. is a valuable drug, actually has kind of a that weird side benefit of actually causing weight loss in some of these people, mm-hmm. so that maybe they don't actually end up needing it long-term if they actually right. get adequate weight loss. Right. So I think that this is still an undefined area, but, you know, we all have that one or two patients who had a undiagnosed spontaneous leak who showed up to us with meningitis, you know? Right. And that's a pretty serious consequence as well. Yeah. So, again, yeah. we're always balancing these things, and this is where we really hope the evidence in the literature can help us define what we should do and where, you know, which patients get the most benefit. I've also yeah. had some patients who I thought were going to have increased intracranial hypertension, and we got an opening pressure, and it was normal, <laughs> you know? And it was nice they, not so to... They so had, they had perhaps stigmata such as an impetella, sure. and yet sure. there were normal opening pressure. So what do you do with that? So I tend not to treat those patients, yeah. which is why I still puncture them, um, yeah. even though it does have some cost. So these are the exciting things that these kinds of... Doc, these are the exciting conversations that this document can help us discuss and start yeah. thinking about, and hopefully encourage us to work together in it, because all of us know that... It, it's still a fairly rare, these are all fairly rare disease processes. Mm-hmm. And if there is one thing that is, is constant throughout it is we really do need to team together if we're going to yeah. answer many of these questions. Because, yeah. you know, doing 10 a year even or 20 a year, right. Right. it's going to take us half enough. of our career to get an yeah. answer. Yeah. And our patients probably deserve a little better than that. I agree. And, and I think this is where you're exactly right. This is really a push towards, you know, multi-institutional cooperation to, to sort some of these things out, which just adds another layer of challenge to, to studying this. But also, as you said, it's, it's exciting that we can identify these uh, opportunities. Okay. So how about another clear take-home message from the document, uh, other than the need to control post-operative of intracranial hypertension and spontaneous CSF leak repair? Yeah, so probably going a little bit more towards the neurosurgical side, yeah. I think that we can I think we can say now that the endoscopic technique for pituitary resection yeah. is at least equivalent to the traditional microscopic technique. Okay. Despite our disadvantages of not having a three-dimensionality mm-hmm. and having the need for actually probably a little bit broader access, I would say our outcomes are as good, and I think in time we may actually see that they are better. That's not proven yet, but I think the take-home message is that old philosophy that endoscopic pituitary surgery was somehow inferior to microscopic technique. I think that this document in multiple different ways uh, shows that it's, we can say that there is not a deficiency there. I think that's especially so with these functional tumors 
mm-hmm. where there are actually some very good systematic reviews now, which demonstrates the equivalency between the two. I think that we need some longer-term follow-up because our technique is newer, and some of these things can recur later. But I think that that's a really important take-home message as we continue to have these multi, uh, well, multidisciplinary discussions about what is right and what's best for yeah. these patients. Yeah. Uh, I think this document actually, again, provides some strong evidence for that message. Yeah. And I think in a similar vein for a tumor that's maybe a little nearer and dearer to our audience's hearts, which is olfactory neuroblastoma, yeah. I think that we can increasingly say that open cranial facial is not better than endoscopic mm-hmm. techniques. Mm-hmm. Now, we can discuss about the length of follow-up because... Yes. You know, this is a tumor that we all know can recur very, very late. But within the first five years, I I think that we can say that um, to a large degree now, olfactory neuroblastoma resected, appropriately selected, and done endoscopically with an oncologic procedure can be very, very equivalent to open craniofacial techniques and may have less in the way of complications and associated approach-related morbidity. So, again, this is exciting stuff because I think malignancy is really something where we as endoscopic surgeons have a burden of proof to make. And I think this document begins to support that in a broader way. Great. And so the critics of the endoscopic resection of esthesia neuroblastoma would say what, Eric? They they would say, well, listen, we, we can't really talk about this until we have 10-year outcomes because this tumor is one of those tumors that, that takes a longer time to recur than, than other cancers of the skull base. That is true. And I think that that is a, a, still a legitimate shortcoming of where our literature is at this time. But some of the other prior criticisms, like that endoscopic patients generally have lower stages or lower tumor pathology or Himes grade. I think those, this document really addresses well. The ability to get oncologic margin in that setting, I think that this document does a, a good job in looking at overall and disease-free and local regional recurrence in that setting where we're talking about large, larger tumors rather than i.e. the cherry-picked tumors, you know, the small tumors that you do endoscopically. I think that we're showing that sort of balance can be struck even with an endoscopic technique. And interestingly, some of the studies are actually showing that our margin status may be, even though we take it out, quote-unquote, piecemeal, our margin status may actually be a little bit better. And that's, again, an exciting finding within the study. And again, over and over again, we've sort of shown that a margin-negative status is probably the most important predictor of disease-free survival. So time will tell us whether we can, you know, as we continue to follow these patients, whether this endoscopic resection continues to have a better overall survival and disease-free survival. But that's one of those things where we only have had the technique for so long. And so that's a, I think that's a criticism that we will see the answers addressed in the upcoming iterations of this. But I do think that this is still a really nice first early step in showing the validation of this particular technique for this tumor type. Did anything that you came across surprise you in the sense that uh, you, maybe it changed your view or your opinion about something in this field based on, you know, working with a number of different authors from multiple disciplines on this document? 
for me, actually, I was surprised most about the craniopharyngioma data. Okay. And a lot of us don't do a lot of craniopharyngiomas, it's true, mm-hmm. but this is a tumor after pituitary that I think the neurosurgeons are probably most amenable towards using an endoscopic approach. Mm-hmm. It's quite hard, actually, for some of the other uh, transcranial approaches to deal with yeah. some some of these craniopharyngiomas, and there's a lot of heterogeneity to them. But interestingly, I think I I thought that gross total resection was really the key to craniopharyngioma. And there was actually a lot of interesting data about subtotal resections followed by planned adjuvant radiation or using a multimodality therapy that I didn't really understand the evidence towards. And actually, it seems like some of these larger studies that are coming out actually show that this may be perhaps even a better option for some of our patients, although the data is... It, it struggles because of the heterogeneity of the tumor type and yeah. what it involves and yeah. invades. But I thought, actually, I was really quite surprised by that. And it's also an area where there's actually a lot of basic science and translational research mm-hmm. starting to look at predictors in it. And so this is its probably one of our first tumors where we're really starting to worry about the molecular aspects of it mm-hmm. as well as our surgical ability. And so I think it's, again, a really interesting but to me, a little bit surprising how some of these combined therapies were nearly as effective, if not as effective, as gross total resection. Okay. That is interesting. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll look through that part of the document again. I didn't catch that as I, as I went through. Before we wrap it up, Eric, I wanted to tie this into another podcast that I did, oh gosh, a few episodes ago with Spencer Payne at the University of Virginia on his management of spontaneous CSF leaks. And he published a study that suggested that certain patients might benefit, patients with spontaneous CSF leak might benefit from treatment with, primary treatment with acetazolamide, which then stops the CSF leak in his study and experience in, in many of these patients and averts the need to correct the skull base defect. And in full disclosure, you and I were both co-authors on a um, letter to the editor about his study, and I thought he wrote a very uh, thoughtful response to our letter. So there's an ongoing debate about this, but what would the document say about Spencer's study and uh, findings in his study? I think the document in itself really couldn't draw any conclusion because there, it's, re, it's really one of the first pieces of evidence we have for a non-surgical management of yeah. this particular disease process. Yeah. I'm personally only aware of a few other, essentially, case reports. Yeah. There's a case report of a patient who underwent gastric bypass prior to repair of their spontaneous CSF leak with resolution after, essentially, massive life-changing weight loss right, right. and resolution there. And so I think the document, as is typical for many of these documents, has to be silent in the areas where we don't have evidence. Right. And I think this is one of those areas where we really have a lack of evidence. Certainly there are many people who have concerns about that because although the egress of CSS may be halted, we're not sure that the dura has re- restored its integrity. Right. I think that's where many of us have concerns and risks. And although, you know, I commend Dr. Payne for being 
willing to put out a work that sort of stands against what many people practice, yeah. I think that we don't have enough follow-up and we don't really have any comparisons. It's, it's kind of very typical for a skull-based paper, which is unfortunately a retrospective case series, yeah. which is, as you see in the document, the predominant literature right. for right. skull-based surgery. And right. again, a call to us to innovate, to think beyond those things, to try to establish higher levels of evidence so we can provide better recommendations as we move forward. And I think that this is just another example of that where a single retrospective case series, while maybe controversial, there's a reason we call it level four evidence, right? Because we don't, we don't know really what to do with it because we just really have a lack of comparators and all these other things for which to work with. Right. And it's really, I mean, I think it's, it's innovative and certainly has sparked a lot of discussion. So, yeah. you know, I think... It, it, again, prompts us to carefully evaluate what we're doing and understand why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. Sometimes we get, and I'm certainly guilty of this, we get so lost in our own dogma that we won't open our minds or our eyes to to evaluate other other options and i think it's i think it's what i think and i've told spencer this all along that i think what he did was the right thing if you if you've stumbled across something and it seems to be working for your patients i mean the idea is publish it in the peer review literature we all hear physicians all the time talk about the anecdotes in their practice but Absolutely. you know publishing it in the peer reviewed literature is another is another issue and 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 that's really what we should all be striving for i also want to put in a pitch for the you know these multi institutional studies. I know that the American Rhinologic Society is looking at a new grant mechanism to, to fund specifically multi-institutional collaborations. And I, I think that's a great idea. I would call on all of the societies to look for ways to help investigators collaborate across institutions because We've all done the case series, and we've probably gotten about as far as we're going to get with case series. And it, as you've very nicely stated, it's time to get to work on, on our multi-institutional collaborations. I think that's incredibly exciting, and I think that it really shows the leadership of the ARS thinking you know, ahead of the curve. And that's where we really need to go. We need to keep pushing the frontiers of what we're doing and studying, and it's a great time to actually be a rhinologist and to be part of this. Agree, agree. Well, thank you so much, Eric, not only for your tremendous work on this. I know this is a lot of work, time you've taken away from uh, your other duties and your family to help advance this field. It's very important to physicians and to patients, and, and we certainly thank you for that. Also, thank you for joining me on the podcast and, and being such a great guest. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of Dr. Smith and his guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.